everybody, thanks for joining the WOW crowd. Our guest today needs no introduction. His impact and contribution to the game of Australian rules football has actually just moved into its fifth decade. Uh, he's one of a select few to have shaped the modern game and has been a factor in its evolution as a player, uh, as a coach of the Australian international rules football team, and of course, the media. His all-round uh, contribution to the media commentary won him the prestigious 2019 Elf Brown Award at the Australian Football Media Awards. Folks, I'm joined today by none other than Gary Lyon. Gary, welcome to the show, mate. Chris, thanks so much for having me. Fifth decade makes me feel very, very old, my friend. <laughs> you're uh, Gary, you're uh, you my vintage, that's okay, mate. So, um, but uh, <laughs> look, I, I wanted to start off, uh, we're gonna take a bit of a journey. We're not, we're not necessarily focused on footy, we're gonna talk a, a bit about sure. also, you know, for the advisors out there, a little bit about your journey from a financial standpoint, but going back to the start of your career as a young footballer from Kyabram in country yep. Victoria and arriving in Melbourne as a skinny 17-year-old, can you describe what it was like arriving in Melbourne as a teenager from the country at that time? So I was actually 16, just turned, um, and lived at home, mum and dad in Kyabram, and I've just finished year 11, and the, so Kyabram back in those days, we were zoned. So it was a zoned area. The Melbourne Footy Club had first rights of anyone in that area. And so I'd been involved in what they call junior development programs and had a bit of a taste. And so Melbourne Footy Club came to mum and dad and said, we want Gary to come down. Uh, and just so it happened that coincided with my year 12 year. Uh, mum not keen at all. Dad thinking, you know, he's just turned 16. I'm not sure about this. and. There's me just going, yeah, 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 get me down there, get me down there. So um, I won them over. I went and uh, lived with a young couple with another guy from Rootner in, in, in near Shepparton who was doing the same thing. And, and we, so we were boarded or billeted out and went to Melbourne High School. So they put us into Melbourne High, which was um, and, and remains a great academic school. And uh, so we, you may well ask, well, how did I get in there? And they said, well, We'll accept these boys. There's a couple of other blokes doing the same thing as long as they'll play footy for our school footy team. So I went down, I uh, went to I'd go to school at Melbourne High School, training and playing with Melbourne under-19s and just trying to make my way in the in the big city. It was, a, it was an adventure. So, I mean, back in, in those days, I mean, what, what support was available at that time? I and mean, it's obviously changed a lot now because you hear about the AFL supporting young players, but what was it like for you in those days? Um, well, you pretty much left your own devices. So we um, we get up, we get ourselves out of bed at six o'clock and make our way to school on the bus. And every now and then, the Melbourne general manager of the footy club used to live out there, and he would drive past. And if if he saw us, he'd pick us up and give us a lift in. That was about as good as it got. But he smoked about four cigarettes on the way in, so we don't we fall out of the car just coughing and spluttering. But I got 40 bucks a week living away from home allowance, which I thought was just about, uh, made me almost a millionaire. So that was fantastic. But to be honest, it was really tough. We get to school at 7.30, we go and stay after, because Ron Brathy was coaching the Melbourne senior team on the MCG, and he wouldn't let the under-19s train until the senior team finished, and often that'd be at 7.30. So we get on the training track at 7.30, train till 9.30, shower, get home, they put us in a taxi, and we get home at 10.30, and flop into bed and do it all again. So. From a 16-year-old point of view, it was pretty... Yeah, pretty I mean, yeah, well, yeah. So you've had an amazing and a really successful journey across sport and media, but success came at an early age for you. But you were obviously aware early on that you needed a career beyond football. So what, what, what was the driver there? Yeah, so I played, in a, I played in a really interesting period of footy. We were very much... Um, employment was the priority and footy was almost secondary. If you couldn't get the training in the early stages, then the football club was very understanding. Um, because you had to have a secondary job. And I struggled with that, to be honest. I, I studied a bit of finance uh, not for not very long. And then, um, you know, wanted to just play footy. And so I ended up working at the AFL as a junior development and promotions officer. And in that time, I started to just dabble a little bit in media stuff as well. Started doing some radio with 3AW, um, did a little bit of television, and then it just grew and grew. So I had two careers that were running parallel. and I. I never sort of thought media would be my secondary career, but it just sort of evolved, felt comfortable enough doing it, enjoyed it and loved it, and you know, 35 years down the track still doing it. So very fortunate that you know, footy ended and I walked straight into another, you know, another, um, uh, another job and loved it and still doing it. That's fantastic. 
So, you know, again, as a young footballer, how did you manage the financial trappings? We hear this all the time, you know, these kids that get thrown into the, the spotlight, earning good money, you know, that's come at an early age. How did you manage that? Yeah, again, it was really unsophisticated, to be honest. Um, found myself an accountant through, I'm not sure how, probably football club uh, recommendation, and and it was a really basic, basic um, situation. And, and the, we all made our same mistakes, you know, once you got your first good paycheck, we'd buy a car, and that was sort of the priority, get the fastest car or the best looking car you could get, that seemed to be the smart thing to do, but, um, then, fortunately, my, I had an accountant who then you know, made sure that we invested in some property and some real estate. And that was about as sophisticated as it got, you know. And, and look, we're really fortunate. We make really good money at the really early stage of our careers where in normal circumstances it comes later. So we were just prime for advice. Prime, we we're prime candidates for someone to take us under our wing and say, listen, if you do this, this and this here, then you'll benefit here down the track. But it wasn't really forthcoming, you know. The accountant was about as far as it got. And then you have a manager, and I fortunately had a great manager and ended up having great fights with him later on in my career as I got a bit older and understood, um, you know, what I needed from a financial point of view. And he would say, the management people would say, well, that's us, we do that. And in the end, they don't. They, 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 you manage my footy career and my accountant, my accountant you manage my, my tax and all those sorts of things. And we're just screaming out for someone to say, listen, you know, from this point of view, I can do this, we can do this, we can advise, we can point you in this direction, we can get you in there. And that didn't come until I was 29. And to this day, I say it was one of the most important meetings I ever took because it turned my whole financial world around. And I looked at it, sat down, you know, got involved with him, opened my eyes to all these different you know, possibilities and, and structures that... I just hadn't taken advantage of early on my career. And to this day, I say, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young footballers and say, listen, you know, you don't go and buy your car from the car salesman. You don't go and then take your car and tell him to service it. You know, let's just stay in your lane. There's people in their lanes. And, and that's worked for me. Fortunately, I wish I had got there when I was 19, not 29. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's clearly it's changed a lot. You see the, uh, the, the amount of support that AFL clubs wrap around young footballers today, you know, and I'm sure that, financial advice and and how to manage that you know in the early days whilst you know developing their career because it can be a short career right I mean so they've got to make some good decisions I tell you um, back in the day it was very popular for footballers ended up owning pubs I mean you got obviously Percy Jones the famous one in Fitzroy and Nick Rewald you know Luke Darcy I mean did you ever own a pub yes I did <laughs> there you go. I didn't know that. No, I did I did at the London Tavern in uh, Richmond for a couple of years which was which is good, you know. I, I, my coach at the time, John Northey, ended up being involved as well, and uh, he had you know, years and years of experience. And we worked really hard at that for a couple of years, and then footy changed and transitioned, and you needed, you know, the time commitment went up. So um, it was it was something I never regretted. But I only did it for a couple of years. It just wasn't practical longer. Were you were you running it during your footy career, or was it after? During your no, no, very much, very much. So I was only twenty three, I think, at the time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the Richmond, Richmond um, it was very much a Richmond pub. It was a great traditional Richmond pub. And um, they first day I took over, or we took over, they looked at me and I looked at them and, and we thought, how's this going to go? But they ended up being fantastic. And, you know, so you'd front up on a Monday after getting a building, they'd let you know about it, the public, the, yeah, the, the locals, <laughs> but it was, it was character building. Yeah. I remember Brass owned a pub. He did, in, uh, yeah. Mountain View, Ridge Road, Ridge Road. Yep. Yeah, cool. So look, we, we know you've had um, also, you know, a hugely successful career uh, as a media presenter, um, but your, your media apprenticeship wasn't an overnight success. You've mentioned that already, but uh, I noticed last year in uh, 2019, you copped a bit of a grilling on the front bar over the early days hosting AFL Squadron, which is a great watch if anyone wants to go and have a look at it. But tell us about your media career and how you got there or, you know, where you are today. You mentioned 35 years. You've you know, you see you early on in, in, in that career to where you are today. It's obviously been a big journey. You've learned a lot in the way through. Just take us through that. Yeah, so that was when I was working with the AFL. There's Danny Frawley, the late, great Danny Frawley. Gavin Brown, myself, were doing the promotions and junior development. And part of that was going around and doing clinics and you know, any promotion that the AFL had on. And they had this little show on Channel 7 called the AFL Squadron, which was a junior supporters show. Kevin Bartlett, I think, did it before. Robert Dippy and Domenico. And, 
Kevin Sheen, who was my boss, just said, one of you three are going to have to do this show. So the other two, one was nicknamed Rowdy, so he was never going to do it. And Spud, I don't know what Spud, it fell to me. So I did that, but I then started dabbling in radio, and that, this was my first probably biggest step. Um, Steve Price is a 3AW, you know, people would know 3AW is the number one station here in Melbourne. Sam Newman and Rex Hunt, they used to do this spot on a Friday night. Steve Price would have Sam and Rex come in and it was wildly popular. They were at the peak of their powers. And it came to Christmas about this time and they all went on holidays and Steve Price um, had said to me, look, do you want to come in and do that 15 minutes on a Friday night? You know, just, and, and I thought, yeah, it's a foot in the door. So I had a holiday house in Inverloch at the time. I was on holidays, I was down there. I used to leave Friday. I'd drive back up to Melbourne, go straight to 3AW, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, sit there. Steve Price would ultimately you'll, you'll be running late, so he would get me on at 5.53, and I'd get in the studio, I'd do four minutes, he'd take an ad, and that would be it. And then I'd drive back to Inverloch, and I, I did that just to get a foot in the door, and I did that all summer. And it was, you know, within that time, was whether I showed enough or not, but then they asked me to do a Sunday morning thing and then it just it just grew. I ended up working for AW, um, Channel 9 Footy Show came along and probably my first love was writing for the newspaper. So I wrote, I wrote for The Age and The Herald Sun over the you know, 15 or 20 years. So all those things sort of complemented each other and that's how it started. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we've talked about, you know, your, your success on the football field and often you mentioned writing because some people may not realise, you know, that uh, you also, you've been an author and I refer specifically here to the series of children's books, Specky McGee, which was a big fan in our family. Uh, I have to admit that our 13-year-old cat is named Specky after that, that children's book series, which uh, is some, some sort of random sort of uh, trivia there. And then the autobiography is, of course, you know, The Demon Within uh, that you wrote. But tell us a bit about Specky McGee and, and your mm. foray into being an author, because that was a fabulous series. Yeah, it's one of the more rewarding things I've ever done. And, and people, the first... So I went to school with this young guy called Felice Arena, who was a year below me at school. And our pars, you know, once we left Kyabram, he, he was an actor. So he was in Neighbours and, and um, I went and played footy, obviously. And... He went overseas and did the stay, you know, the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and all that stuff and started writing while he was over there. Came back to Melbourne at the end of my footy career and I hadn't seen him since my school days. And I wrote my autobiography and it was published by the same people who were publishing him. He'd started to write some books and he just said, listen, I've got this idea for a football book. He knew nothing. You know, you know, he knows nothing about football at all. He said, would you come on board and, and add the footy stuff? And I, you know, at that stage, I thought, yeah, sure. And... So I did, I, I, we, I called it footyizing the book and you know, we put it out there and we hoped, that, but they, the publisher said to us, if you sell 5,000 novels of a kids of that nature, then you're doing really well and 10,000 to run away. And I, I think it's over 100,000 that first book now. Anyway, from that period, we just threw it the second and the third. And from the second, like I actually write, I, I genuinely love writing. So we would sit, sit in the room and we'd work out where we wanted to take this book and we'd you know, carve up the chapters and he would take his piece, his piece and I would take mine and we'd bring it all together. And it was, apart from the fact that it was, very, you know, it was a successful book, but we got all this um, mail, all this sort of mail from teachers and from librarians and school teachers and they said, listen, you boys don't realise, you know, you've tapped into a this reluctant boy reader situation, we couldn't get our kids there. And this one lady, as this one couple wrote us a story, a, a letter and said, look, we gave up on our son, we thought he had a learning difficulty and maybe dyslexia and in, in desperation, I saw this football book and I just bought it and said, here, and we were in bed at 10.30 at night, her husband and he came flying in the door, jumped on the bed between them and said, mum, dad, have a listen and started reading this book and they, you know, the tears. And I know that, I don't say that to you know, be corny, but it was just really emotional stuff, you know. So we wrote eight of them, I think, eight in the end. Um, we left it a little open-ended, so it's about time to be revisited and maybe even a, a female version now. I think it's going to be on the... I, I, I tried to dig them up before this interview to have a quick squeeze through. I don't know where they are, but I know they're in, in a box somewhere. But uh, they, were, they were a huge hit uh, with my two boys, that's for sure. Mm. Um, and obviously, you know, this show, Whole of Wealth, uh, is really the focus. And I just want to sort of turn a bit of attention to that. You know, um, again, we talked about your, you recognising early that you needed advice. Um, tell us about... You touched on it, but tell us a little bit about the journey with advisors, you know, from, you mentioned at 29, post that, of course, 
you know, you, you've obviously had a really successful career um, and wealth creation obviously, you know, was important, but as it is for all of us. But can you take us a little bit about how you, your journey with advisors and what you looked for, uh, for from an advisor? Yes. So whether I'm lucky or not, I found someone who was just a symbiotic relationship with Struck. We get on well. He's one of my great mates and as we're now doing different things. But um, I didn't want someone that I just went to once a year and said, here, and we reviewed it and walked out the door and, and you know, in 12 months' time came back and said, oh, you've done well here, not well here. It, I wouldn't make a decision without consulting this these particular people and the faith that I had in that and one of the first things that he said you know it was a planning situation it was you know sitting down and saying you know when do you want to retire when when do you see yourself finishing work and because that's what the whole planning process is and it struck me as saying yeah well it's a really good point you know if I want to retire at 50 yep yeah, well now 53 I'm not retired obviously but if I did what sort of lifestyle did you want to be able to enjoy you know did you want to have a nice car do you want to go on a holiday whatever and and he set up such a way that I then would use that as a reference point and then every decision I made reflected that. Okay? And I'd say, look, I want to buy a more expensive house. And he would say, yeah, okay, that's fine, but that then reflects at the bottom end here. You might have to work till you're 51 or 50, you know, whatever it is. And, and it, was a, it was an investment in me. You know, that, that's what won me over. It wasn't an investment in, in my book, in my figures, in my, you know, the facts and figures. He, his investment was in me and my family and the decisions got to know me and understand me at a level that, you know, to this day has held me in fantastic stead. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't tell anyone how to run their financial business, but that's just so critically important. I mean, if you haven't got that relationship, and if it is a, if, if there's a sterility about it, like if it's you know something where it's not as investment invested, then I, I reckon you can do better. And you know, I don't know whether I was lucky or not, Chris, to be honest, but it changed my life, changed my whole life around, and and it gave me a plan and gave me something to work. And up to that stage, and again, really lucky, made good money through my twenties, but got to twenty nine, going, oh, I've got you know, what am I doing here? And, and now 30 years down the, well, not 30, 20 years down the track, I'm, I'm still with that man and I still enjoy a great relationship with him and, and I'm much better for it. What, what's the, I mean, it's obviously been a bit of a journey around the, the whole advice piece, but what, what was the best piece of advice you, you were given over that journey? Just to, back over, just to back over what I said then, it is to have your plan. And, and you know, I was very big on re I was real estate. I was a bricks and mortar man. I'm saying, here, this is what I've got. And he'd say, no, that's great. But there are other investment options. And, and then explain, I'd go, you know, the, the naivety about the stock market or whatever the situation was. And I look at it and I go, yeah, but I can go and drive past my house and I can see the damn thing. And I know it's not going to disappear overnight, you know. And so just educating yourself. And I, I think that's the most important part of all of it. You don't need to be end up being a, an accountant or a financial planner yourself, but educate yourself to the point where you understand what's happening. Understand the decisions. So have, you know, ask questions, do your own homework, study that. I'm not an expert. I had a great passion for real estate and love of it and not a great understanding of these other options that were presented. So I had to get myself up to speed in the other area. And then we can sit down and have a good conversation. Oh, you know, ask questions. Why is that? Why is this a good investment? What, why should I be investing offshore, maybe? What, what's the situation involved there? Instead of just handing your stuff over and saying, here, fix that and come back to me when it's all done. So I think it goes both ways. I think you've still got the onus of responsibility lies with you still. In, 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 and it's even from a footy manager, when I always had a manager and he would say, look, and I reckon you should be you know, maybe doing this with this network or I reckon you should be doing this. And we'd have a fight, not a fight, but a really robust discussion. And in the end, it was always, it's great. Don't forget, you work for me, okay? So you can give me all your advice, but then it's up to me to make the decision. And that's the same in this world, I reckon. You, all the advice in the world, but educate, educate yourself to the point where, okay, that makes sense, I understand that. Yep, I agree to do that, or I'm not sure about that. Let's revisit it maybe in three months' time. Can you think of a piece of advice that was kind of really momentous or life-changing for you that your advisor provided? Well, advice, um, I know it was advice, but I, I found my dream, I always wanted to live in this particular street out in the eastern suburbs, and I loved it, because, as we spoke about earlier, I loved this real estate, and I found that, you know, big, a block a house on this big block in this great street and went through it once and there was an older house needed a bit of work but I loved it and then I spoke to my advisor and said listen I'm interested in this house 
can you have a look at it? And he did. And as he went to have a look at it, I then left on my footy trip, which was um, always a challenging time. Um, so got on the plane and I think maybe in halfway to Cancun, Mexico, we may have stopped somewhere and I had a conversation with him having had consumed probably more beer than I needed to on that flight, Chris. Thankfully, I had the experience of my advisor there. I said, I want to buy this, da 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 And uh, anyway, I got to Mexico, forgot all about it, woke up the, the next morning with a, with a very bad hangover, but a message saying, congratulations, you got the house. It was the best purchase I've ever made in my life. So... So he went and bought it on your behalf. Well, yes, I had given, I'd given probably not clear instruction, but I'd given instruction that I was keen to get it. But what I said at the halfway mark of that trip to Cancun with a few beers under my belt, I'm not exactly sure, but it all worked out for the better. Fantastic. Good bit of advice. It was, yeah. Damn straight it was. I just want to finish on one question, Gary. That is, you know, the most rewarding aspect of your career. You've talked about the children's books. You've obviously had a great footy career in media and everything. What, 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 what would be the most rewarding aspect for you? Uh, again, without sounding cliched, is that I sit here today at age 53 and I enjoy a magnificent relationship with the three sons I had. And um, they were born in the middle, well, towards the latter page of my footy career. Um, three boys, they're now 26, four and two, or somewhere around that age. And they're my best friends. And that's the most rewarding thing I could say. You know, anything else that comes along is a bonus after that. So somewhere along the way, you know, we've had challenges and there's been growing highs and there's been lows, but we've been able to maintain a very close sense of family and, um, you know, enjoyed the successes and ridden out the lows and then find yourself in a pretty comfortable spot here with a great relationship with those that mean the most to you. I think that's the biggest win. And, you know, behind that is all the other decisions that come with, you know, stuff we talk about today, being able to prioritise what's important, being able to delegate, being able to say, listen, I can't do all these things, and then to have a great team behind you so you know from a financial point of view, yep, that side of things in really good hands and I'm really comfortable and I'm really um, you know, uh, secure in my knowledge that he's or she is doing the right thing for me. Um, family life's great, whatever other thing, you might have your hobbies and you know, if you get all those parts, and that hasn't always been the case for me by the way, but it just so happens that today I sit here and the one constant through that has been able to know that that side of the business, the financial world, is okay. It's in really good hands. Um, whatever I've needed, it's been able to be accessed and, and from that point of view, that decision I made back then when I was 28, 29, which I wished I had made when I was 18 or 19, um, has been one of the best I've ever made. That's a great way to finish, Gary Lyon. Thank you so much for joining the WOW crowd. We really appreciate your insights. Fabulous story and uh, and really relevant for, for the accounts advisors that are listening in. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right, some great stories from Gary to delve into, and here to do that uh, in our WowCrowd panel, we've got Jason Cunningham, co-founder and director of the practice. Jason Cunningham is one of Australia's leading business growth experts. Uh, he has inspired thousands of business owners to make more profit whilst also creating a great lifestyle. Jason was a member of Channel 10's The Living Room for over six years. Uh, he is the, was the finance guru on Triple M's drive time program, The Rush Hour, and spent nine years talking money on SEN's 1116, The Run Home. So uh, welcome, mate. G'day, Chris. So good to see you again, pal. Yep, you too. Uh, we've also got Matthew Rowe, um, CEO and Managing Director of Count Plus. Uh, Count Plus provide investment and intellectual capital to leading accounting firms uh, and advice firms. Matthew is the former Managing Director of Hood Sweeney, the 30th uh, largest accounting firm in Australia and twice uh, a BRW top 10 fastest growing firm. Um, he was also the longest serving chairman in the history of the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Um, so welcome, Matthew. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. And last but certainly not least, Kim Payne, founder of Nine Rock. Kim spent almost 20 years in the corporate world in stockbroking, relationship management, financial advising, training and consulting. And then she jumped ship to run multiple financial services businesses of her own. She spends her days, uh, these days, working with advice professionals, helping them 
clarify, communicate, and demonstrate the value of their advice. She believes this is the secret source to grow their business, to make more money, have a bigger impact, and feel proud of what they're doing. A very warm, wow crowd welcome to you all. So look, we're going to jump straight in, guys. Um, Gary, Gary mentioned uh, that his relationship with his advisor was special because it went um, beyond just the numbers uh, to be an investment in him and his family. And, you know, it was interesting here, Gary, right at the end, talk about his greatest achievement was, in fact, financial. It was actually the relationship with his boys. So some really powerful stuff there. Um, I might start with you, um, Jace. Do you think the industry needs to form deeper relationships with clients beyond tax and financial products? Um, well, thanks for that, Chris. I want to appreciate the non-prompted question, which is some of your best work. Um, I, to start with, I guess what we've got to do is understand our industry. And, uh, and us as accountants and, and financial advisors, typically, we're not strong on the personality piece with respect to our industry. Uh, in relation to people like Gary and, and having deeper relationships, I think first and foremost, when sometimes there's, a, there's this element that we might be a little bit uh, awestruck or fanstruck. And I saw there was a fair bit of man love with you and Gary as you, as you were talking. But I think the, the key is to remember that they're just people. And the key to connecting with people is to understand the person and go behind the numbers and talk more about um, the things that are important to them as opposed to just what they're earning and, and what they do for a job. And I've found that it's not just the accounting industry, Chris. So I find that in most industries, the business owner does not necessarily look at their business through the eyes of the customer. They look at it through the lens that they see it through. So often accountants are having conversations about contingent liabilities and division 7A and all this sort of stuff that doesn't mean a heap to the customer. But when, once they start talking about things that are important to the client, like Gary was saying about you know retiring at 50 or 53 or whatever, I think that's when the relationship goes deeper. Because after all, it's the human interaction piece. It's, I think, where you build the trust. Yep. Um, that's great. Kim, I know that you, um, you talk a lot about deeper relationships uh, with advisors when you, you talk about how getting close to the client. Do you have something to add to that, you know, in terms of that, that relationship piece? Yeah, look, I love it too, because I'm also a client. I've got accountants and financial advisors. And honestly, I think this should be one of the most exciting industries on the planet because we get to really um, talk to humans about things that they don't tell anyone else about. And those that I find that do it really well, I kind of liken it, this is my favorite metaphor. Um, it's like scuba diving and snorkeling. So traditionally, so many accountants and financial advisors just sort of snorkel at the surface level. And that's really cool. You'll see some nice fish, you know, some nice colors or whatever. But when you really dive deep and go beneath the surface, that's where you see the shipwrecks and that's where all the really big fish hang out and that's where the juice happens. And I don't see enough of that, but yet those that go down to that level, that's where a real important human relationship takes place. And it's kind of like, you know, I often think about, you know, on the wedding night where you've got a really deep, intimate relationship with someone versus, say, a, an arranged marriage where you don't know them. You know, it changes the course of everything when you go deeper. So for me, this is, it's so exciting and critically important. If it's going to be a relationship, different if it's just a transaction, but if it's a relationship, the ones that scuba dive there, I think where all the gold is. Yeah, you know, I've got to say, there was so many metaphors right there that I was biting my tongue like seven times. I'll be honest with you. Um, so, but yeah, I appreciate where you're coming. You're a very excitable sort of person, but wedding night, shipwrecks, I was just, Holding on to a lot of things there. <laughs> but you got the point well, right, didn't you? I, I got the point. I'll tell you, I got the point. I got unnaturally excited at times. I got nervous. I, I don't know where I was going with it, but I'm only playing with you, Kim. It's, um, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting when we talk about the relationships. Look, historically, financial services are seen or can be seen as a once a year type service, you know, for example, tax and annual plan review. Now, Gary mentioned this, he, 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 that he was looking for something beyond that. In fact, he said that he wouldn't make a decision without contacting his advisor. So, you know, how can accountants and advisors have a close relationship throughout the year? I mean, are there any tips on how to provide these services profitably? Does tech play a role? I'm interested, maybe, maybe one for you, Matthew. So, look, I think, Chris, um, you've got a better amount of time to do this. So, look, at, at a personal level, I've been in practice most of my life before I took on this role. There was something really cool about going home and uh, realizing that somebody that you'd had a conversation with that day, they've just they've breathed a little bit easier because you've been in their life and given them some advice and sort of seen them through some stuff. And, and let's face it, Chris, money and financial affairs, it's a very intimate subject matter. Um, 
So I think the good advisors, they find the time to do this. So if you're in an accounting firm and you're in a six minute you know, billing zone, well, find time in your production schedule in your week just to be able to call clients. Um, they'll engage with you. They actually love the idea that you ring them just to check up on them and see how they, and it could be a significant milestone. You know, it's their birthday. That's a, that's a no-brainer. Ring them on their birthday, particularly you know, your high-value clients, but make the time for them. And then the other thing I learned, and you know, I learned this um, through Peter Hood, who founded my old firm, Hood Sweden, um, uh, listen a lot more than what you're doing talking. So ask open questions, listen, put things on a whiteboard. Don't show them the balance sheet and the PL. <clears throat> Most clients, they don't understand what a balance sheet is. Um, work out what the scorecard is that's important for them and talk to them in terms that they understand their language. And you're actually not very good technically if you can't explain a complicated matter to a 14 or 15 year old. That's the true test for me. So anybody can sit there and, you know, jargon and acronyms and confuse the hell out of anybody and look really important because you, and you're talking all this tax talk, but if you can't explain it to a 15 year old, you don't really know what you're doing well enough as a professional. And that was always my litmus test. So this is, this is getting back to some basics of good advice um, and, you know, old fashioned service, but, you know, are there any tips on how to do that using technology? Yeah. Can, can tech play a role with that? Cause I know at times, I mean, picking up the phone, that's, that's, that's obviously only tech. Yeah. That, are there opportunities here for advisors? I would have thought Chris, so, um, and sorry to cut across you, Kim. I know this is an area that you're big on, so I'll just be really short. Um, I think I think there's two parts to it. I think I think deep down, our clients want us to know that we care. And I think so. For a business owner, I'm not saying I'm an expert or you know Australia's leading expert, but we, you know we've done some good things. The first thing is we've been really focused on what our purpose is, who do we serve, and how do we serve them, and part and just adhering to our mission statement and showing our clients that we care. But that was easy early doors. You know, today's our 23rd birthday at the practice. And when we first started business, we had 11 clients. So it was easy to care for all 11, right? And the other thing that when Rob and I, we had no other work to do. So we were showing them so much love because, mate, we had nothing to do, right? Now, what we, what we do know is as our business has grown and we're a multidisciplinary practice, the most important part to help us and help facilitate the showing of we care, because I agree with Maddie, bringing someone on their birthday, that's a real good point. But I can't remember, we lost 7,500 tax returns. So there's no way known I could do that without a system that's a system that's easy to follow. And so technology for mine is so important. It's got to go hand in glove with the caring piece, but you've got to have the technological, uh, technological support to be able to do that. And it's got to be easy. You know, the thing about you know, having a database or having a system, or having information, if it's hard to find and if it's clunky to get a hold of, or you've got to cut across so many different systems, it's a big time challenge for business owners and for advisors. So I think, I think tech is a big part to play. Yeah. Anything else to add there, Kim? Yeah, um, firstly, happy birthday to the practice, Jason. That's super cool. We're, we're celebrating with you. Can you um, tell I'm only 23 years old? <laughs> yeah, of course you are. So am I. <laughs> um, one of the things like with tech, and, and sometimes I know advisors get really obsessed with tech and wanting to put more tech in, but even something as simple as when you know your clients and you know some of the things that they want to do, say over the next 12 months, even just putting those in the diary. So rather than just a random, how are you call, which certainly can be helpful. It's if you know that they were planning on, you know, having this mini break on this date or they, their kids are about to, I don't know, finish secondary school and going to high school, just putting these dates into the diary. It's so basic, mm -hmm. but it's not done very well so that you have opportunities with reason and purpose to actually pick up the phone rather than just randomly have the how are you call for no reason, which they're great too. But, but even just using your diary or whatever software you do use to put dates in that you actually do follow up with the client. I think that's a really important piece that you can do reasonably easily without having to add to your tech stack as it is today. Yeah, good point. Nice touch. Yeah. Interestingly, Gary wished he'd met his advisor at 19 and not 29. Um, and we all know how different our view of the world is between 19 and 29. But historically, accounting and financial planning are for older clients. And, you know, clients that have more complex affairs or more money to invest. So how can the industry help people earlier on in their financial journey? Have you one for you, Matthew? So I think, um, firstly, every client has kids or grandkids at some point, Chris, potentially. So, you know, I'd be looking at a client as a multi-generational you know, relationship. Um, the other thing is, I mean, part of being professional practice, you employ graduates yourself and you bring them on, uh, you train the next generation of professionals, you know, 
as a professional, you're a debtor to the profession. So I, I always saw it as a big part of my role as a leader in the firm to make sure that um, there's a lot of training and development and a lot of mentoring, having people involved in meetings alongside of me. So you get them to be dealing with the, the younger kids coming through. So, you know, we built a student program for medicos at Good 20 where we were dealing with the people that were still at uni. They weren't earning any money, but we didn't care. It gave some of the other people in the firm the ability to cut their teeth on pretty simple matters. But then those relationships would blossom and as those medicos would come through and become specialists, they had a relationship with the accountant. So just, I'd be thinking outside the square um, and I'd be thinking about the existing clients that you've got in terms of the generations that might be coming through because let's face it, the next five years is going to be the single largest intergenerational wealth transfer ever in the history of this country. The money's going to go somewhere. Um, and if you don't know where it's going, you're going to lose it. Yeah, yeah it's a good point. Actually, just on a side note, Matthew, I'd be interested. Um, we spoke earlier um, about the CPA Australia report, the value advice report. It was really interesting because, you know, you think about, you know, that, that you know, well, Gary's situation as a 19-year-old and, and you think about all of these Australians that are not getting, you know, whether they be young or whatever situation that they're not getting proper advice. Um, that report found that if properly implemented, professional advice, if it was available to all Australians, the total economic uplift could be something in the order of $630 billion a year. And spending on age pension could be reduced by 21.6%. I mean, these are staggering statistics. I mean, Gary's, again, it, it, it's interesting hearing how advice has helped him, but many, many more Australians. I mean, do you have a view on that, Matthew, in terms of... Yeah, so Chris, I think there's, there's, there's two aspects of this. There's firstly, the financial literacy. You know, there's still a lot of people that don't understand compound interest or what a simple interest rate is. So I think there needs to be an opportunity to be teaching that stuff in school earlier. But also to the point around financial advice and affordability, um, look, I'm a big fan for pushing for tax deductibility of financial advice. Accounting fees are tax deductible for, for tax work, but there's a lot of financial advice that's not. And look, I know that the professional bodies and you know the accountants and the FPA are pushing for that. I'm, I'm a big fan of that idea. I, I think that financial advice, uh, when, it, when it's done well, is that is absolutely a contributor to the economy. You know, it's not a detractor; it contributes to people's well-being. Uh, and I think, you know, now with where we are in terms of professional standards and fee for service, those fees should be tax deductible. And I think that would go a long way to helping affordability within, you know, the advice sector for consumers. Anything to add there, Kim or, or Jason? Oh, well, look, uh, yeah, I do. Remember back um, 20 years ago when the GST was first introduced? Yeah. Uh, first, my eyes lit up when you told me that stat from CPA Australia. I have... Without disrespect to the uh, CPA, I am a CPA as well. I just haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, but that excited me. But remember back when GST was introduced, the government was handing out, Matty, you probably remember this, when the government was handing out $200, um, and allow, which provided uh, the customer to get advice and all that sort of stuff. I was working for CPA at the time. Hearing that started adding, uh, what did you say, Chris? So what's it going to add to the GDP every year? $630 billion. Right, okay, so we've just been through this little pandemic. I don't know if you remember it, and there's a bit of a lockdown and the economy's no good. Uh, it would be great if we could get some people to scream that out at the top of their voices to Scott Morrison and these sorts of people so that they can, we can create the opportunity for people to come and spend money with accountants and financial advisors. Because the big challenge is, and I, I hear what Gary's saying, oh, look, I would have loved to have seen my advisor when I was 19 and not 29. Well, there's two big differences. At 19, Gary was an elite athlete and a big dollars, and most 19-year-old kids don't have any money. And I appreciate what Matthew's done in his old firm, a bigger firm, and not every firm that's uh, listening to this or, or watching this is of the size that Matt's old firm was, you know, in the top 30 in the country. Um, but if the government did provide an incentive that allowed the taxpayer to spend some money to get some advice, um, then that could be that ripple effect that allow a kickstart to the economy and help us bounce out of the whatever billion dollars worth of debt we've got at the moment. Just, um, just while I've got you, um, Jason, um, yeah, you've, um, I mean, what's been, what's your experience been with clients like Gary, you know, and, and what is, you know, you talk about these young athletes and I know you, you've been around a number of mm. probably high profile clients. I mean, what's your advice to firms looking to attract these types of clients? Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, so the, I, I, the first high profile client I met played football with Gary Lyon and worked on the same station as Gary Lyon, it's David Schwartz. And uh, he's become a very close personal friend. But when we first met, he was referred to me by somebody else. And when we met, he wasn't a good bloke in those days. He, he's, he's gone on record now. He had a big gambling problem and all that sort of stuff. 
he's a cracking fellow, one of my best friends now, but we worked with him to help him through his gambling problems and, and tidied his life up. But it got to a point where the reason that we engaged so much early days is because he wasn't going to pay my bill. And I thought, jam you for a game of soldiers. I don't give a flying for nearly, nearly use some of the French language that I have often been known to use there, Chris, but lucky we held on to that. Um, so yeah, I decided that I was going to sue him and we had a confrontation and I, we had a confrontation in the boardroom and he broke down and looked to cut a long story short, I need to make a decision. Am I going to let this guy go or am I going to help him? And I knew that if I helped him and if I focused on helping him, this could actually be a benefit to me. And it, and it was, and I guess for mine, the first thing I did was I treated him normal just like a normal bloke. I know he played centre forward for Melbourne. He was a gun footballer and all that sort of stuff, but he's still a bloke. Um, he was, his girlfriend was pregnant at the time. They weren't married. And I thought, you know what? I'll just treat him the way I wanted to be treated. And if I focused on genuinely helping him and ignored the fact that he was a footballer or a retired footballer, um, I think, you know, the relationship started to foster from there. And, you know, he, uh, from, from that, I was very fortunate. I wrote a book about my first book I wrote 10 years ago and I got him to write the forward on my book, right? But I made the forward by David Swartz was in bigger font than the author, Jason Cunningham. So it sort of looked like he wrote the book, right? And, and from there, I got a job on his radio station. And from there, you know, someone introduced me to Tally and all that sort of stuff. But just hanging around with him and helping him out, but being genuine about it, it worked out all right for me. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the point that Gary made. I mean, Gary spoke very fondly about his financial advisor and how that relationship has, has grown over the years to, and, and, you know, he's been there on, on many occasions to help him through, you know, financial, um, you know, his financial world. So that, thanks for sharing that story. I think it's really, really goes to the core of what advisors can and probably should be. I mean, Kim, you talk a lot, again, this is going back to that, that depth of relationship, right? I mean, um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And even just, um, Chris, your question before about the younger generation, um, and this one's a metaphor for you, Jason, that, you know, if you met the person that you're married to now, you know, 20 years earlier, you might not have been ready for them. And they might well, That's a good point, because I would have been seven. Day. I would have been seven at the time, Kim. I'm sorry to cut across this island because I love a lot about you and you and I are good friends, but it'd be somewhat challenging to get married at seven. But I, I get your point, sorry. Yeah, for you, definitely. Keep going, Kim. Um, yeah, no, and, and so the, the challenge is that with the younger generations, if you're wanting to work with them and get them hooked and on board, you've got to change your language and you've got to change the way you're doing things. So I've worked with a number of businesses that really target those millennials, the Gen Ys, and their language is different. And some of them even go as boldly as saying, you know, we're not your father's financial planner. Um, now, Matthew, this doesn't help for those where you want to pass it through to the generations and keep them with your firm. But a lot of the clients that go to these advisors is because they don't necessarily like the way that it's been done. They don't like the message that's coming out. So you've got to change your language. And financial planning, and I've got younger siblings, um, one particular is 15 years younger, and she always says, oh, financial planning's not for me, financial planning's not for me. She's got no money, but yet she needs help. So even when I'm just mucking around and having a bit of fun, I'll say, well, you know, do you want to be able to, you know, go on a holiday and buy a new swimsuit and a new outfit and all that? She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, did you know that if you had a financial planner, they could help you do that? And she's like, no, they just, they're all about limiting me and restricting me and making me save all my money. So it's a different message to those that really want to get in there. They've got to get in and speak the language of those millennial clients. And it's different and it's a different process and it's a different pricing model. And I think that's the really key difference if you want to get them. Um, and the relationship you'd have with them is very different. Um, so there's some of the things I see that, you know, you, you're developing relationships. And I, I had a relationship today with someone that was 15, 20 years younger than me, albeit I know, Jason, you and I are only 23. Um, it would be slightly different to say the relationship I would have with someone my age or someone older and being able to mould that, I think is a really, really important part to keep connected. That's great. Can I just jump in there, Chris? So I, I, I go back to your point earlier about technology, right? And I know, I mean, it's no secret you were MD at zero and, and now passed that uh, baton on to Trent and, and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that zero has uh, obviously been at the forefront of the industry when it comes to tech and accounting is it's allowed us to be more efficient in our processing and our non-value added sort of work. Okay. So if we can take advantage of the technology that allows us to be more efficient in putting together a set of accounts or helping educate our customers on how they can get better at doing part of the record keeping themselves, 
and all that sort of stuff, then it allows us more time to have those conversations. And, and, and you know, it, rather than, you know, reducing the bill or whatever, if the fee is still about the same, and again, I'm speaking from the lens of a, of a partner in an accounting and financial advisory firm, but if you've got more time, because the biggest reason I think that stops us from going deeper is we run out of time. So if we can create more efficiencies in the back end of the processing of the work that we do, so we've got more time to have a conversation and we've got more, and we've got technology that enables us or reminds us to have those conversations, I think we're going to be in a better state to deepen our relationships with our customers. All right, guys, so we've, we've spoken about going deeper. So if you are going to do more than annual tax and reviews, I mean, how do you charge for that? Uh, maybe Chase. Yeah, sure. I was going to say as much as you can. Uh, so <laughs> no, but, uh, that was a slight tongue in cheek, but some sincerity around it. I, I, I guess, I guess the piece that has to be, oh, our ethos is around value uh, and, and, and whether or not the customer sees value in the work that we do. And so there's a couple of things. Number one, I never want a client to have a surprise when it comes to a fee. So I, I'm really big on the customer will be well aware of what our fee will be for any assignment. That's the first thing. The second thing is when we do consulting type work, we do things like one page business plans or we do, we take our clients away on retreats and a few other things like that. We let them know in advance the fee. And my, I have one rule. If you don't get the value or the value that you thought you were going to get out of that engagement, simply don't pay the fee. And so what someone once taught me a long time ago, Jason, remove the pain points, remove the friction from the client engaging with you. So if you could have a conversation with a client to say, this is what I, tell me what your goals and objectives are. And they tell you what they are and say, well, if I remove that, what would it look like this? Yes, it will. Well, the fee for that is 4,500. Are you happy to pay that? And we're going to deliver you this. If they don't get the value out of that, I, I don't want to charge them for it because I don't want to have an issue where somebody's walking around saying, he just lunged into me for four and a half grand and I didn't get value out of it. So I, I think you've got to pick your mark too. Because not every customer, and Matthew, you'll agree with me on this. I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time. Not everyone's going to see value in that. So it's it's about, it's you know, value is in the, or it's, I think the saying is art's in the eye of the beholder, or value in this case is in the eye of the beholder. The customer that you're engaging with has to see value in it before you engage with them. I don't know what your thoughts are, Matty. Jason, I agree with you. I've got a saying that price is only an issue in the absence of value. Um, so I'm with you, I think, if you're upfront about things. Look, I've had a client once say, you know, Matthew, you only spent probably an hour on that job and you sent me a bill for five grand. And I said, well, it's because it took me 20 years to learn to how to do my job, mate. Mm. Um, so I'm with you on it. I think be upfront about it, remove the friction, the pain points, um, and be transparent. And you know what? In my experience, 99 out of 100 people actually pay what you're looking for because they do see value in what you're doing. Um, it's how you articulate that. Yeah, and I, honestly, mate, I, I reckon that one of the most important traits to have, not just as an advisor or as an accountant, but as a human being is to be authentic. And I think authenticity is, is, is paramount. And so I'm not going to tell anyone how to run their own practice. I'm just going to talk about what we do in our organisation. It may work or it may not work, but we only sell or we only provide advice based on our experience, not our opinion. So, you know, we do things like one-page strategic plans because we do it in our business. We, we go away and take clients away on retreats because that's what we do in our business. We go away once or twice a year and work on our business because that's what we do and that's what we believe in. And so when, we, when I communicate with a customer or a potential customer about something that I see value in, I talk with conviction because I'm authentic about it because I believe in it. But I also believe in not ripping someone off. That's the last thing I want to do. 23 years of business and all that reputation, the brand that we've built, I don't want to burn that by charging someone four and a half grand and they didn't see value in it. What a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kim, Kim, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, yeah. Um, I, exactly what you said, Jason and Matthew, actually, that if, if this is the price and this is what you need to pay this year to, to be our client, then as the advisor, then you need to make sure that the client can see that value. So that's in how you're explaining it, how you're demonstrating it. And I've got a mentor that I work with. And one of the things they say is, if this is what you need to charge to make it worth your while, so you do your best work with them, then you make sure you pack enough value in. And honestly, when you're having a deeper relationship, like I would say from listening to Gary, that he values that relationship you know, to the point where he's not going to walk away from it. And there'll be some years where he probably doesn't get as much out of it. He doesn't need the advisor as much. 
But gee, those years when he does, because they're close, because they're deeper, because it's about his life, it's not limited to just what's going on in his portfolio or his insurances or his superannuation. It's about his life. So that need for constant advice and that understanding comes because he's got the relationship. And that in itself increases the value in the client's eyes. And I would say, if, again, I'm not Gary, but um, if his advisor was to put his fees up, I reckon Gary would still stick with him because he sees that value. So yeah, this kind of goes, as Jason said before, hand in glove with, you know, if you can really help them understand how this impacts their life, this changes my life. This is not just about my money and my numbers. This is about how I live and money's the fuel that lets me live the way I want. If that is really clear and this person, this advisor helps me get that, then I'm paying their fee. I'm finding that money to pay their fee. That's great. We've had this fantastic expert panel here, uh, unpacking all the stuff that Gary Lyme talked about in his personal journey uh, with his finances and everything. And we've had really great insights from our expert panel, the Wow Crowd panel. We've been joined here, of course, Jason Cunningham, co-founder and director of the practice, Matthew Rowe, CEO and managing director of Count Plus, and Kim Payne, founder of Nine Rock. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your expertise and insights. I'm sure there's been a lot of value uh, for our listeners today. Thank you again. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Well, guys, that concludes Wow Crowd episode two. Uh, we've started a community here with some fantastic insights from some very interesting people. We'll have more to come in 2021, uh, but that concludes 2020, and uh, we look forward to you joining us in future episodes. Thanks.